You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast that features interviews with thriller, mystery, and suspense authors. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash M-T-T-A. That's an M as in murder. Over 180,000 titles, including great thrillers to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So stay tuned for the next episode of Meet the Thriller Author. Everybody, I have a uh, Celie uh, James on the uh, on the call today on Skype. So I'm really excited to talk to uh, Celie about his uh, books and his thrillers. Uh, Celie, how are you doing? Just fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I really appreciate that. And uh, can you tell the uh, listeners a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, well, I am a full-time author and uh, a refugee of 30 years in the technology business, and I always wanted to be an author, but <laughs> they say life got in the way, and I stopped letting it a few years ago, five years ago. But I, uh, I adopted a three-year-old girl when I was 19 and was a single dad for a long time and needed to make a lot of money real fast, so that kind of kept me from my life passion. And and uh, now that she's 43... Uh, I uh, decided to move on and uh, since married and had two other kids, but I've uh, moved on and, and uh, used a little bit of that experience to form the heroine of a thriller series. Can you tell us a little bit about, the, about that series, the, uh, the, the security, the Sable Security series? Yeah, Sable Security is uh, a, a, a firm run by a retired athlete and billionaire, Pia Sable, um, and her stable of agents, the primary agent being Jacob Stern, who is either gifted or cursed, depending on how you look at it, by uh, having a personal relationship with Mercury, the winged messenger of the Roman gods. And uh, Mercury's message to uh, to humans isn't always pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> But it does. Uh, it makes a good deal of comic relief and a little bit of uh, a little bit of a twist to the story. And do you find that writing as a, for, as, a as a female protagonist is, was that a challenge? It's it's a huge challenge for men. I yeah. think it's much easier for women to write men than it is for men to write women. I spent a good deal of time on some Reddit forums and some other places and and pinging ideas, and I discovered that women have a much different outlook on life. <laughs> A lot less, a lot more cerebral and a lot less violent, if you will. And so it, it was very difficult to get into that headset. And I wanted to have a strong protagonist. You know, um, uh, you see quite a few uh, female heroines in movies these days. But the reality is that, that it's very difficult for women to beat up a guy. So they tend not to try. <laughs> they tend to find a different way to solve the problem. And uh, I was really taken by Zoe Sharp's uh, uh, heroine, um, her series of books, very, very good books. But her, uh, her heroine always figured her way out. And I was trying to get there and, and yet still have a physical side to it. So Pia Sable kind of straddles that. And as we go forward, she's getting more and more cerebral is what I've noticed. The better I get at writing a female perspective, the better I get at writing a woman who thinks her way out of the problem as opposed to shoots her way out, like James Bond. And how long have you been writing thrillers? I mean, even before you started, uh, when you were working in the, in the corporate world, were you, were you still writing on the, on the sly? Or? Yeah, that was my uh, that was my sort of stress relief. Was you know I was a um, in international sales, so I would be uh, uh, flying to London and you know long times on airplanes, and I would just I would read books and write books, and uh, and I tried for probably four or five years to get them published. And you know a lot of indie authors say that traditional publishing is full of these unnecessary gatekeepers, and I want to say thank you to all those traditional publishers who stopped me from getting published because. The stuff I was sending in then was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we saved the reading public from some really terrible books. But I, uh, I decided uh, five years ago that I'd read a book by uh, um, John Locke, mm -hmm. who he was the first author to sell a million ebooks, and I read one of his books, which I thought were really simplistic and poorly written, and uh, yet he sold a million books. And then I read his book on how to do it, and I said, I could do that. <laughs> um, while I was in the middle of writing my first book, it came out that he kind of cheated his way 
to the million books, you know. Yeah, he left that out. Of, he left that out in that ebook. <laughs> yeah, and so there I am, kind of committed to being a writer and doing it on my own. I'm going, ooh. Uh, so I better research this because you can't get away doing it the John Locke way. So I, um, I hired editors. I read every book on the on the craft, and that's when I read the wrote the Geneva decision, which was head and shoulders above anything I'd written prior, and continued to develop my craft. So if you read my first three books, you see. Uh, the really the development of an author you know the the first book was pretty good the second book was good deal better and the third book really i hit my stride and, and uh found my voice if you will and it, it, and from there on it's been a lot easier to write and i i guess i, I launched myself at that point <laughs> and how many how many books do you have published so far I have five, and I am uh, started working on the sixth yesterday. Oh, wow. Exciting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how long, does so, it, how long does it usually take you from when you start to write uh, for it to be out in the public? And well, the first four books took me a year each because I really tried to develop the characters, the story. The first book was about Pia Sable. pretty much, and it was a standard mystery thriller. Um, she was a heroine. She had an issue and went through it, but that's not why I wanted to write. I wanted to write as a form of protest. You know, the the uh, from from Dickens to Voltaire. You know, writers have always been involved in protest, and several issues have always bothered me: the amount of money in politics, the uh, what people consider the truth, torture in wartime. Uh, all those things have uh, are issues for me, and I wanted to bring them out in the book. So I developed my craft, and I also at the same time knew that. Um, that the plain old mystery thriller with a female heroine, it didn't matter if it was a female heroine or a male heroine, uh, you had to have something that separated you from the crowd. So with my second book, I developed a, a, a male counterpart character, if you will, so she's more cerebral and he's more physical. And you know, I, I decided, well, we need a, a, a character kind of like me, somebody that's uh, really accomplished very little and screws up a lot. <laughs> and you know, the, the perfect foil for the perfect heroine, because uh, women in, in thrillers tend to be very perfect. Um, where men in, in mysteries and thrillers always have some kind of either OCD like like Hercule Poirot or or they're just totally messed up like Jacob Stern, my my hero. And um, so I developed him in the second book and that was really dealt with torture and has a scene in there that uh, that takes people into waterboarding as, as a very real experience. And a lot of people have written me and told me that it changed their viewpoint. That's why I got into the business um, because I wanted to change people's minds and, and highlight certain things within our society. And so then I knew that Jacob was the right character and I developed him a little bit further. And that, that's what took so long for those. But then by the time I got the fourth book done, Death and Dark Money, I really had the characters down. I had the development system down and it took me six months to write, or actually seven or eight months to, to write and get out the, uh, the fifth book. And I'm now looking to probably cut that down a little bit more. And I think the next book will be, uh, the, uh, death and the damned it took me six months to write and two months to produce. And then the next book, I'm hoping to get it all done by the end of March. Oh, wow. The middle of April. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So you really got it down now. <laughs> yeah. I, I cannot match Russell Blake oh. or Diane Caprey or some of these people who just crank out books. Yeah. I can't, I can't type as fast as they write books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Russell. Yeah, Russell. Uh, yeah, he's something. He's like published. Like, I think he's published like ten books this year. <laughs> he said he was going to slow down. Yeah, <laughs> I heard that on your show, and I was like, "Oh my god, Russell!" <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he has a you know a, a what is it a walking desk? Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Yeah, because yeah, like, I hike a mountain every morning, and that's where I kind of think about what I'm going to do for the day. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I spent a couple hours uh, scaling the top of this mountain and, and back and. It's a very meditative process. It really clears my head, gets me ready and set. But I still sit down at the computer and I, I think, you know, how's this scene going to work? And and I, it takes a lot of thinking to get things through. And when I hear somebody like Russell, he's going to crank out a book a month. You know, what? <laughs> I, can't, I can't think that fast, much less type that fast. Uh, but I, we have different kinds of books. Mine are very complex. I have three points of view. Um, and very interwoven stories, subplots uh, that are very, you know, there's there's three plots going on, there's three angles going on. And I, I wish I could write something the way uh, Russell Blake writes, you know, this is sort of a linear, single character story. Because mm -hmm. um, those are 
they're simpler, they're easy to read, they're fun to read, um, but my mind isn't that under control. <laughs> I just have all this, you know, it's like fireworks going off. There's boom, boom, boom in different directions, and and I throw that all on the page, and uh, you know, hopefully somebody will like it. <laughs> well, yeah, you you do pretty good. So I think lots of people are liking it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Do you do you outline before you start to write? Uh, not, I wouldn't call it outlining. Um, I have a spreadsheet with 72 scenes broken into, uh, I think it's 24 sequences, four acts. And um, I know what I want to have happen and when, but I don't know what's going to happen or who's going to do it. Yeah, I, I know the turning points of the story, and so I forced myself to, uh, I, I kind of took a, a long look at a book called Save the Cat, which is about screenwriting. And it's super simple, uh, great formula. And then I looked at The Writer's Journey, um, which was uh, written uh, sort of a takeoff on uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and I, I read that as well. I've taken those three books, put them into the spreadsheet as the sequence of events that need to happen. And as uh, as Blake Snyder said in Save the Cat, you know, just after the, something has to throw the story sideways in the middle of the book. Uh, the middle of the TV show, um, movie, whatever you have, something throws everything out the window, and you have to start all over. And that's where the character has to look deep within his soul. And, and all the books on story structure say the same thing. So I have this thing listed out. This is These are the things that I want to do. And at the midpoint, I want this to happen. And I keep that, and I keep looking at it as I'm writing. So each chapter really represents a scene so i end up with somewhere around 65 70 chapters um so i have an organizational thing and i know what's going to happen but invariably so far with the first five books what happened at that midpoint was completely different when i got there from what i had on my spreadsheet <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know like i got a better idea whoa, whoa, whoa. okay instead of killing the president we're gonna kill uh uh the united nations uh head you know <laughs> yeah or, or no 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 we're gonna kill the governor of indiana why not you know, um and you stop looking you stop looking at the uh, at the spreadsheet there you're like no no, no. <laughs> I'm no i keep you know what's funny is i keep looking at it and as i as i write the first half of the book i keep making adjustments to the spreadsheet okay with well, this character didn't work out so he's going away altogether so i'm going to remove him from the rest of my spreadsheet and you know and on the spreadsheet i have basically uh, you know uh, two or three fragment sections sentences you know it, it, it says uh, uh, steve is gonna uh, acquire the guns for the big fiasco here and it turns out that you know there are no guns needed uh steve's not involved <laughs> so, so as i'm about halfway through i quit updating the spreadsheet i'm like ah screw it I, you know at this point i i have it in my head you know and i, I know what i'm gonna do and and i go and then it becomes sort of the last half of the book is a is a discovery and then i have my first draft and so then i have to sit down and, and read the speed read the first draft and realize where all the plot holes are where all the really obtuse things are the absolutely useless passages you know? <laughs> and then what's missing you know so i and then i go back to my spreadsheet and say well you know what is what does blake snyder say and what what does the writer's journey say what does joseph campbell say should happen in this general area you know oh it should be the uh, the, the redemption of the of the good guys they, they come back from the dead you know and and decide instead of running off with the tail between their legs they're going to come back and face the evil um Sort of like Hamlet did when he decided to to expose his his uh, father-in-law. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's fantastic. I really like the idea of the, of the spreadsheet. That's uh, interviewed a lot of authors, and uh, that seems and the breaking down in scenes too. That's very different from uh, from from most every other's process. And it sounds like it's a really great way of of keeping organized, but not getting yourself too into a into a box. Yeah, well, it it really stemmed from having written. Uh, three novels that will never see the light of day <laughs> and realizing later that they didn't follow the standard formula that the audience is, is uh, expecting. See, I, I was a young man when Star Wars came out and I remember distinctly going to the theater and seeing this movie because everybody was talking about it and I went there and I watched that movie and I remember seeing scenes and saying, my God, that is perfect. It's exactly what should happen, but I didn't expect it. You know, and I, and I knew that that was a master storyteller put that movie together. And I, I, I forgot all about that as I'm writing my first three unpublished novels. Um, 
And I went back and said, you know, there are certain things that people expect to happen and they want to be surprised, even though they're expecting this to happen, they want to be a surprise. So it's it's quite a trick. It's a it's a it's a tightrope walk for the writer. And so I keep that spreadsheet to keep me honest. Because my stories tend you know, I I'm kind of a pantser, you know, I, I, so I don't outline. I don't have it you know, Clive Cussler has it all down. You know, he's got he has a ninety page outline before he writes the first you know, word, oh, wow. or, or at least he did in his youth. But um, I don't know what he does now because I don't think he's writing those books. I think Russell is. Yeah, Russell's written um, a couple. <laughs> yeah, um, but the uh, um, I can't do that. I just I'm not that organized. And I took the um, James Patterson Masterclass, the you know the hundred dollar Masterclass, mm-hmm. which was both worth it and not worth it. It was just like his books. It was super light but fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if it was twenty bucks, I'd recommend it to everybody. But it's not. So I, you know, I kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in that, he said something that just blew my mind. That uh, that halfway through his book, he throws out the outline that he had. Oh, no. <laughs> like that's Whoa. just like me. <laughs> I'm in great company. I feel so much better now because I was thinking I was just a total wreck of a writer and I had no idea what I was doing. So he starts. He said that he writes down. Uh, he, he puts in the chapter headings. You know, 60, 70, 80 chapter headings or 150 or whatever he has. And then um, he puts in two or three sentences about each sen- each chapter, what it's supposed to be and what's supposed to happen. And by halfway through, he quits doing that. <laughs> Whatever's in there is junk. And, you know, and he's moving on. He, and he also said something that, that I really took to heart, and I now do. Uh, this was at the end of book three that I'd, I'd written my third book when I learned this. He said when he gets done with, uh, towards the end of each chapter, and he's writing it, and he knows where it's going to go, he stops and says, what could I do that would just throw this whole idea out the window? <laughs> And what can I do to completely surprise myself, paint myself into a corner? The last thing I want, you know, I, I'm writing a chapter and I know what the next five paragraphs are supposed to be. So what can I do that's a total opposite of that? And I've challenged myself and I, I, I just don't have the courage to do it with every chapter. And I, I'm not sure that he does either. But, uh, but I do it in enough chapters to make it just really refreshing to write because I don't know what's going to happen next. That's brave, especially if you already have it all, you know, kind of, you know, you have your spreadsheet or whatever, you have an outline to, to, to do that. That's, that's kind of a brave yeah. challenge. <laughs> I spend, I spend probably two, three days making that outline. And, and I got to confess, some of those chapters just says chase scene, think something up. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, a chase scene ought to go here. That seems like the right place for a chase scene. Um, but uh, some of them are kind of detailed and, and carry the plot points and the, and the major characters, the good guys, the bad guys, all that kind of thing. What I what I really do that I, to, to back up a little bit is I write down what the bad guy is planning to do. You know, so let's say we're going to rob a bank and we're the bad guys, and you and I are plotting to rob the bank. We're going to case the place. We're going to figure out how many cameras they have, how many security guards they have, how much money they have, how much we think we can get, how much time it'll take. Blah 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 blah. And so I make that whole timeline, and then you and I go to execute our little bank robbery here. We got a getaway car. We got to have a way to launder the money when we get done. You know, all all this, our whole big plan. And then I say to myself, okay, that's the big plan. These two guys are going to go rob a bank. Where does the where does the good guy walk in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it does he walk in just as we're robbing the bank, or does he walk in just as we're entering the bank, or does he walk in while we're planning the bank robbery? Uh, you know, and Vonnegut said, you know, start. The, your story as close to the end as possible. And so that would say that, that our hero would walk in just as the robbers are walking out. And so this is where your whole plot just goes out the window. Um, and so you, you think something up like that, and then as you're writing it, you're tearing up your own script as you go along, purposely tearing up your plan. <laughs> and it makes a whole lot more interesting way to write a book. And what do you do? You like use Word, or you use like one of those uh, like a Scrivener type of software? Software. I, you know, I've been in the technology business for thirty years, and I've heard people, I've heard indies say all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, Scrivener or this or that. You know, it's a tool. You, you never hear the, the the carpenter say, "This is the best hammer you could ever use. You have to use my hammer. This is the exact same thing. You know, everybody should use this hammer. Who cares?" It's a freaking hammer. I happen to know Microsoft Word, and every complaint I've heard my fellow indie authors give about Microsoft Word, to me, is really an indication of their ignorance of how it works. Because I know what it does. <laughs> I know how to do it. And there's really no better product on the market 
uh, and, and nor is there anything as universal. I think mean, it's like 97 out of 100 computers use Microsoft Word. So, yeah. you know, like, so if you have a problem and you need it solved, or if you're going to outsource your uh, your formatting, as I recently did, uh, you know, I'm a tech nerd, so you know I love to make EPUBs, and I st- suddenly realized, you know, there's a guy in Thailand who's really good at this. And he does it for a hundred bucks. <laughs> what am I doing? Why do I, why do I want to spend three days making the perfect EPUB when a close to perfect EPUB is just as good? And I don't have to worry about it. I can spend that time marketing. So, you know, what does he want to get a file from? He wants Microsoft Word. <laughs> so, you know, and Scrivener and Vellum and all these things put out all this great stuff. And, yeah, there's a million ways to do it. In the end, the reader doesn't care. <laughs> so I try to keep everything I do focused on the reader. And... You know, if somebody, if I could learn Scrivener in half an hour as deep as I know Microsoft Word, maybe I'd switch. I don't know. But there's no, it doesn't benefit the reader for me to switch over to Scrivener. Yeah, and Scrivener, yeah, and Scrivener, especially in the beginning, is actually it's kind of like overwhelming. So, yeah, it's the opposite of learning it in half hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I've been using OneNote for years. I know that thing inside and out. So when you talk about organizing your notes and stuff, OneNote is not only better, it's shareable, it's in the cloud, you can use it from your iPhone. You have a great idea when you're on the top of Camelback Mountain, as I am some mornings, I can open up OneNote, put in my notes, figure out exactly where it goes. I can open up my little spreadsheet, check to where those characters are and fix that, you know, and uh, and it's all done. It's in the cloud. And then when I come back to my laptop, it's right there. All the notes that I made from my phone at the top of the mountain are in my finished product on my desk. Scrivener can't do that. <laughs> yeah, and even they wouldn't. So. Anyway, when they use a Scrivener, like you said, the, it's usually the editors and proofreaders all want it on, on Word for the you know the comment and the and tracking stuff, you know, when they're editing. So yeah, it, eventually you have yeah. to uh, produce a, a, a Word doc file in the end anyway. <laughs> right. So why not just start with it and learn the things? Oh, I forget who it was. Some some author who's certainly a lot better than I am was talking about Microsoft Word doesn't handle big documents well. I'm sitting there going, I'm, I got documents that are, you know, I, I have a journal. It's 200, 300,000 words, and uh, I, I split it up recently, so I forget what, how big it got. But I can search it in in an instant. <laughs> what do you mean? You can't handle big documents. It's great. I can do a search and replace. Boom, done. Yeah, so it's just a matter of knowing how to use the tool. Yeah, if you ever, uh, I, I don't know how, how, how you feel about nonfiction, but if you ever have time, that would be a great uh, nonfiction, how to use, how to use <laughs> Word for writers, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a you know, this, having been in the corporate world, there are a lot of people who already do that, and uh, it's just a matter of taking the training. Yeah, and most true. of my indie writers just don't want to do it; they want to grab something that's intuitive to them, mm-hmm. and that's fine. I don't care. You yeah, know, yeah, whatever works for anybody. Indie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they want to use. But it's, it's what, what gets me is when I get into a writers forum and somebody says, "Oh, you got to use Vellum, you got to use Scrivener, you got to use this." And, no, I don't. <laughs> It serves no purpose to me, and I and I, I quit arguing with people too. I just you know somebody says yeah Microsoft Word makes a mess. I go, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Not if you know how to use it. But I don't care if you think it does. Fine. Were you a fan of thrillers before you started to write thrillers? <laughs> uh, well, I've always been a nonfiction reader. Uh, well, I, let me back up. When I was a kid, I read Treasure Island, and it was. I forget the exact. I, I went and looked it up one time because you know, I wish I could find the book. It's somewhere, somewhere in a house in Wisconsin. Uh, it's the 1936 N.C. Wyeth edition that has uh, um, paintings by N.C. Wyeth, and uh, just a beautiful original version with these great pictures. And I just fell in love with that book on a rainy day in the summer in Wisconsin, and. Um, that made me just love the adventure stories. And when I was a kid, I read a lot of those, and somehow I got into some stuff that was way over my head. I read The Tale of Two Cities when I was 10. I read um, uh, um, La Miserable, you know, when I was when I was 12. Wow. <laughs> I didn't understand them. You know, and so fiction went from being this really great, wonderful new world like Treasure Island, which is perfect for a 10-year-old, into this complicated uh you know ex- but but beautifully written i mean i got the general gist of the story of lor miserable but uh but it was way over my head and so then i started reading nonfiction basically as a teenager and i discovered that a lot of my peers just didn't know what they were talking about on history and politics and economy and uh, so i kept reading that and uh, it helped me in my career 
throughout the business world because I was really up on this stuff. Um, it got me into the technology business because nobody had really understood what was going on, but everybody knew com- personal computers were the thing of the wave of the future. And I just read up on them, and I was ahead of most people. I wasn't quite in the Steve Jobs realm, but I was, you know, able to move massive numbers of personal computers, and people appreciated that. So I built a good career off of it. And somewhere later in life, uh, as I was aging in the, the technology business as a young man's game, you know. Um, I remembered how much adventure stories were really good. My wife really turned me on to it. Uh, she handed me a, a Lee Child book um, probably 15 years ago. And I just spent all my free time reading mysteries, thrillers. You know, um, I went through enough James Patterson to make me sick of it. I went through enough uh, <laughs> Sue Grafton to make me sick of it. You know? mm-hmm. Some of these people have long, uh, binge-worthy books. Um, and I'm still a huge fan of Lee Child. Just started discovering all these different authors, and that's what rekindled my desire to be an author. So I was going back in rereading this, and and so now I've become a 3,600 night uh, success. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> off. That's good. Yeah, ten years later. Yeah. yeah. And when you're writing, do you, do you set yourself like with like goals? Like uh, I'm gonna write, uh, you know, whatever a thousand words today, or. Um, yes and no. And uh, I, was, I grappled with that for the first couple of years. I had a 2,000-word limit. You know, if I haven't read, written 2,000 words, uh, I didn't spend my time wisely. And I quickly came to realize that you can write 2,000 words, but if 1,500 of them are junk, who cares? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if 1,500 of those words had nothing to do with the plot. Um, and so I keep telling myself, it's all about the story. It's all about the story. What is this story about? Does this scene that you just dreamed up that's beautiful, uh, that really expresses a human emotion in a way that nobody's ever expressed before, does that have anything to do with the story? And if I, if the honest answer is no, out it goes. I don't care if I've already written it or I spent time thinking it up. But what I do is uh, I want to progress my story in a way that will fascinate readers. And... I spend my day, and, and I, I keep a journal, as I mentioned, um, and at the beginning of every day, I set out what I want to do. I put a lot of my thoughts in there. This is what we're going to do. This is how the story's going to go. And I work out dialogue and all kinds of stuff in my journal. And then at the end of the day, I cap it off. I say, well, I wrote 4,000 words today, or I wrote 200 words today, but I dreamed up this great twist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I if that thing says, yeah, I only wrote five words today, but I dreamed up a great twist, that's a good day. Yeah, so you go more for the the big picture than the, than the actual, you know, nuances of, of X amount of words. Sometimes it's big picture, sometimes it's little picture, sometimes it's detail, but all the time, it's what will make the reader go, wow. <laughs> I want my readers to feel the way I did when I saw Star Wars when it was brand new. You know, wow, spaceships that bank on turns. Who would have thought? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally unnecessary in outer space but go for it lucas go for it <laughs> i i uh, i want to wow my readers that same way and just fill them with awe and and so that's why i, I can't do a single linear plot you know mm-hmm. agatha christie's it's just the genius at the single linear plot there's a dead body and somebody done it you know um that's where our story goes I have to have, there's a dead body, somebody did it, somebody has a reason to cover it up, somebody else has a reason to cover that guy up, and somebody wants to expose them all. <laughs> and now what's the justification for all those people, and why are they doing this? And you know, and i got to get those things in there, and otherwise I don't feel like I've wowed my audience. And I was, um, I was fascinated to check reading your website, because um, this is a question that I usually ask all, uh, uh, other people that I want to interview about their life experiences, and you had an excellent post about... Uh, how adapting your daughter uh, was a basis for a thriller. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And how does she feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> She's honored. Uh, so I have I have three children. One is 43, the next one is 19, and the next one is 17. And uh, uh, the oldest is honored because it's all about her, but she's never read the books. Um <laughs> <laughs> and she keeps telling me, so you wrote those, these books about me? And I said, well, not exactly. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and then she asked me, can I have a copy? And I went, oh. Because <laughs> this is a you know, world-class athlete. Uh, so I, I took a lot of liberties. But the, the basis of the story was that, that uh, well, let me back up and, and talk about why I adopted her. Um, an acquaintance of mine had gotten a job. Uh, she was a teenage mom, single mom. Uh, uh, no future, no plans. Um, her whole idea that she would 
you know, when she was 17, get married and have a baby and everything would work out great, kind of fell apart by the time I met her. She now had a three-year-old and she had just landed a job on the night shift, uh, working six till midnight and she just couldn't afford daycare. So she asked me and I barely knew her. She said, will you, you know, pick up my daughter from daycare at five o'clock and keep her and, you know, she'll go to sleep early and, and, uh, you take care of her until I come, come back at midnight and I'll pick her up and take her over to my house. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. I'm 19. I figure, you know, <laughs> how hard could it be? Right. And, uh, I had no idea what was involved. Um, I went to pick her up at daycare and I really had only seen her once in my life. And I went into daycare. This is long before, you know, people were worried about children snatching and all kinds of other things. So, uh, so they didn't have as much, uh, security involved. And I went into this daycare and said, I'm supposed to pick up this little girl. I forget her name. She's about so high, blonde, blue eyed. And they said, Oh, uh, well, look in this room, and they open the doors, and there's a whole bunch of little girls about so high, blonde hair. <laughs> you know, Arizona, they're sun blonde. Everybody's sun blonde by uh, you know from the sunshine. Um, and I really didn't know which one it was. And this little girl came running out of the crowd, going, "Daddy, daddy, daddy!" Jumped into my arms, you know. Uh, and she just leapt into my arms and, and held on really tight. And that's when I realized what what true unconditional love is all about. And I never let go of her, you know, for the next 43 years. <laughs> so, uh, she was just a, just such a joy and uh, a wonderful person to be around. But she had to endure a lot because I ended up adopting her. Her, her mom kind of came and went from her life. Her mom intended to do well but never got her act together to actually do well <laughs> and by her and would call up and say, hey, I'm going to take her to Disneyland and then not show up. And um, So there was this constant rejection in her life and she managed to keep a, a stiff upper lip and, uh, and and really persevere through all kinds of hardship and uh, emotional uh, abandonment if you will and and that always amazed me that she could still just be such a wonderful loving person even though she'd been treated by life pretty poorly so I, I used that core and said you know that make great um, the great basis for a heroine who somebody who has had a really otherwise terrible life has had a, both a good and a bad life, but manages to, to, uh, to come out of it as a great person. And that's what I use. So, uh, however, I also wanted a, a thriller heroine that was realistically capable of beating up guys. <laughs> so physically she's based on the person I used to hike with, who was the, uh, she was the goalkeeper for the university of Arizona. She was, probably six one uh beautiful woman um <laughs> she had shoulders as big as mine uh <laughs> she was not a uh, shrinking violet and she could beat up a guy if she wanted to i i don't know that she ever did but <laughs> i think she could um because she was an athlete and yeah. i used that as the basis I, I also learned very quickly from joanna penn who read one of my early drafts of my first book in which i described the heroine physically and and Joanna Penn was horrified. Said, you know, this is this is a beast of a woman. This is horrible. How could you make somebody like that? And I, said, I couldn't even read the book because it was so terrible. <laughs> I don't know if Joanna Penn knows that she had a tremendous effect on the on my writing. But when she reacted that way, I went back and picked up all the books on my shelf that featured female heroines, and I went and looked at their descriptions. There aren't any. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kay Scarpetta has a ponytail. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I forget. There's another uh, one of them. You know, my wife and I start thumbing through these books, and we go, "Okay, this woman has a hat. Uh, this other <laughs> woman has a ponytail. This girl's a blonde." That's all we know. We don't know if they're tall. We don't know if they're fat. We don't know if they're short. We don't know if they're pretty. If they're ugly, the reader makes it up for themselves. And so, I, thanks to Joanna Penn, I removed all physical description other than she's tall and she's an athlete, so we know she's fit. So, um, that's all the description. And I get people you know, uh, good reviews and bad reviews, both saying, well, she's a beautiful woman and she's perfect, you know, and uh, that's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how the review went. <laughs> like, yeah, where did you get the idea she was beautiful? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I never said that, you know. Even in the last book, I even had a moment of self-reflection where some guy tells her she's beautiful and she just goes, you know, she never thought she was because she's, uh, if you've, I don't know if you've ever seen a female athlete in person, but they're pretty buff. Mm -hmm. They're pretty intimidating. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. some, some uh, Chrissy Everett once I saw Maria Sharapova um, once, and Maria Sharapova is a, a good example of a very tall woman. I think she's six foot, six one, something like that, and very muscular. And it's kind of surprising when you see one of these uh, 
world-class athletes in, in person, they're really pretty buff, <laughs> thick neck and big shoulders, and and uh, uh, it, it takes you back when you first meet them. Um, so I tried to avoid all that. Uh, you wouldn't say they're beautiful, even though you look. You and I look at a picture of Maria Sharapova um, playing tennis, and you say, wow, she's really beautiful. You see her in person, you go, whoa, <laughs> she's really buff. Uh, so I kind of put that in there. You know, She looks in the mirror, and she sees somebody who's over-muscled and, and intimidating the guys. And when guys see her, they go, wow, or some guys do. I mean, I've had uh, I've had fans who say, yeah, I don't like buff women. I go, well, you like PSA? Well, oh yeah, well she's <laughs> she's <laughs> <There> you <go>. <laughs> like <laughs> okay, <laughs> to each his own. Dream up your own image of her. That's fine with me. Yeah. And how about your own personality? Does any of that make it into your books or to your character? My personality, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Jacob Stern is the hero who uh, save. He always saves the day. He always shoots the bad guy. He uh, overcomes everything, but. Along the way, he's a total loser who screws up left and right. And, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't necessarily get it done right at the end of the day. But, yeah, screw it up as it goes along. You bet. Sure, I can do that. No problem. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, kind of kind of take that angle. It, that part flows for me. There's also, uh, I'm a deeply religious person, but I also have a great sense of humor. And I believe what C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you can't make fun of your religion, what good is it? <laughs> So I have a lot of inside jokes. If you're a, a, a good Christian or Jew, a practicing Christian Jew, uh, Muslim, you will find a lot of church humor in the interaction between Mercury and Jacob. You know, it, it sounds downright uh, existential. <laughs> you, know, you know, like you know, Jacob says to the to the Roman God at one point, "Don't you gods care about us at all?" Goes, yeah, you know, some of you guys die really funny. You know, it's hilarious. <laughs> Getting ripped to shreds, torn up in a tornado, great fun. It's entertaining. It's like, like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. and you said that you're working on the on your uh, on your latest um, uh, book. I was kind of curious. You mentioned before about the waterboarding scene and and how realistic that is do you do a lot of research before you 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 write these oh yeah the waterboarding scene is in my second book bring it and uh i had i was taken by uh the arizona senator um uh john mccain mm -hmm. uh he was a veteran who was tortured by the vietnamese and uh, brutally tortured, broken bones. I mean, he, they broke his arms, his legs, every bone in, in his arms and legs, fingers. Uh, he was terribly tortured. And when it came out that Americans were waterboarding, he was avidly against it. And that caused me to say, you know, okay, here's a military guy who's really a hawk. I mean, he is. <laughs> he wants to attack everybody. And <laughs> his first solution to something is, let's bomb him, see what happens. Um, and yet he was adamant against torture and waterboarding in particular and he said you know that you know, ronald reagan signed a treaty that forbid waterboarding and, and nobody paid any attention to this guy and i'm thinking you know no matter what party you, you are from no matter what your ideology is wouldn't you pay attention to a vietnam veteran who's had all his bones broken when he said do not do this it's morally wrong and and it's also totally ineffective because he never told the vietnamese anything um despite them breaking all his bones so you know, why isn't anybody paying attention to this guy? And so I started doing some research, and I looked up uh, several World War II accounts of being waterboarded and tortured by the Japanese. And uh, there was a, a particular Australian guy who wrote his uh, a memoir. It, was a, it wasn't a book, but it was a uh, magazine article, I think. I'm, I'm forgetting now. I've got it. I keep the links to everything in my OneNotes. But... But I did the deep research on this, and then I looked up several other survivors, and it turned out that we hung the Japanese for doing water torture, waterboarding, rather. And that struck me as really odd. <laughs> we, gave, we gave our enemies the death penalty for this. And then I read a really enlightening book called Black Banners. Uh, um, oh, the author's name is escaping me. He was an FBI agent who was hot on the trail of al-Qaeda in 1998 when they uh, did the USS Cole. Mm -hmm. And so he was one of the first person on the people on the scene when we started capturing people in Afghanistan who were al-Qaeda members. And he was interrogating them. And he said, you know, he pointed out something really made sense to me. The FBI has perfected interrogations over the last hundred years. They have captured and caught uh, not only World War uh, II and World War I um, 
saboteurs and also mobsters and and people who have no reason to tell you anything and they've gotten the truth out of these guys and they've figured out how to tell the truth from lies and they've figured out how to do all this because they're expert interrogators that's their business the cia on the other hand their business is about getting somebody inside the Soviet Union to tell them what's going on. So that's a kind of a different thing. Instead of interrogation, that's more of a honeypot kind of thing. How can we uh, uh, get you to tell us uh, to turn on your employers and your your country, turn against your country, and, and tell us what's going on inside? And never leave because we want you in there. We want to keep you in there <laughs> long enough to tell us everything we need to know. And uh, so, th- so it's a, two different viewpoints on how to get information. And the FBI was so against torture that they walked out of Guantanamo. This is a little-known fact. The FBI withdrew all of their people because they said if they continue to, st- to stand by while the CIA is torturing uh, al-Qaeda members, they would have to arrest them for breaking international law and committing war crimes. So they just left. You know, now, now, you think about this. I'm an American citizen. I don't know if you are, but, but uh, I'm an American citizen, and we have two factions of government, one which is committing a war crime and the other one which is ignoring a war crime so that they don't have to arrest their fellow Americans because you know, that's kind of a bad thing. Uh, that is really odd to me. So I looked into it further, and you look at these accounts of water torture. The big thing that came out of it is, to me, is despite what Dick Cheney says, not one shred of intel came out of that. And if you look at Donald Trump just nominated somebody for Secretary of Defense, and he said the same thing. We're not going to torture because it's useless information. They, yeah, give, you, yeah. they give you what you want to hear. Yeah, and, his ni- and his nickname is Mad Dog. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is, this is a serious right-wing hawk, and he says torture is useless. Guess what, Dick Cheney? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the that John McCain, a, a tortured war veteran, and Mad Dog, a, <laughs> a right-wing hawk, when they say it's useless, and an FBI agent who said we never got anything from it. I was there. I spoke to them in Arabic, and I tell you, they didn't. They didn't get us any intel that we didn't get the easy way. Um, maybe they're right, you know. So I wrote that that scene in uh, in Bring It to to illustrate that. And I think most people who read that just go, you know what? <laughs> that is not the Americans I want to be. You know, that's not the country I want to live in. That's that's not how we do things. It's ineffective, and it's wrong. So, so you take that, and I did the same thing with uh, with Element Forty Two in the pharmaceutical industry. You know what's going on with pharmaceuticals uh, when you can bioengineer um, a cure, you, you can patent it, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this cure. What if you have a cure and you don't have a disease for it? How do you? You know, everybody, every cure has been put out there. We know how to cure most of the stuff, but. What's the best thing you could do for the profits of your company is to create a virus and patent the cure for it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I like that. <laughs> great way to make money, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so then the twist to that is somebody kills everybody that's doing that, and it's not the good guys who do the killing. And so the pharmaceutical company's wiped out, and the good guys want to know, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we know the, 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 the basic reason for the pharmaceutical company to do that was because they wanted to make money, but somebody killed them to get the patented cure. Why? <laughs> and so that was the big twist that I, I stuck in there halfway through the book and I had to figure it out myself uh, <laughs> and I had to develop that one as I went along and then in the uh, in the fourth book was really a statement about the amount of money that's pouring into politics these days mm-hmm. and the most recent election and actually several re- elections have pointed out that, that the guy with the most money in the election doesn't always win but the amount of money and where it's coming from will shock people I mean, if there, there's a book called Dark Money by Jane Meyer, uh, a New Yorker um, contributor, and, and it, it's just fascinating because the things that happen in American politics are not funded by who you think they are. The, the grassroots uh, uprisings are not always grassroots. The, uh, <laughs> the popular opinions that suddenly come out of nowhere and seem to make sense are not necessarily the truth. And... Uh, you know, we're now finding out about fake news, but but fake news, uh, or I like to call them implanted news, <laughs> has been going on for a long time, and and uh, uh, it's just fascinating if you read that book and a lot of other nonfiction books about the the uh, influence of money in politics. Um, 
so I wrote, you know, I, I took that idea. So, so you and I know, yeah, whether you like George Soros or not, whether you like David Koch or not, you know, these guys, one of them's funding the left, the other one's funding the right, and you can take up arms against either one. But the fact that we let this kind of money come in without knowing who put the money in is the scary part. How do we know that Vladimir Putin didn't put $100 million into the last election? How do we know that the king of Saudi Arabia didn't fund the last election? Either side, you know, take mm -hmm. your pick of whichever villain you want. How do we know that, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden was a really bad guy with $100 million at his disposal? How do we know that the next Osama bin Laden isn't funding a couple of senators right now? We don't. We have no clue. And so I illustrated that in Death and Dark Money. Um, you know, the, the, the good guys find out, that, holy crap, somebody built a funnel to bring in cash from all these competing interests. <laughs> And uh, it's it has a negative effect on our electorate. To me, on a personal level, I would I would advocate that any American citizen who has the right to vote should be able to contribute as much money as he wants, uh, he or she, to any election that they want, as long as we know who that person is and how much they gave, mm -hmm. and as long as we exclude anybody who's not a registered voter. <laughs> so that way, you know, to me, that's freedom of speech. And those are the people we don't let the Chinese give to the Republicans or the Democrats. And yet, right now, the way the laws are set up, they could be giving millions to both. Right. And so then the uh, the, the, the fifth book, um, it, it was really a statement about ultra-wealth. You know, as we all know that the separation between the rich and the poor is growing and growing and growing, and we're right now back to where we were in the Gilded Age when people like Andrew Carnegie just decided they were so rich they would quit working and start building libraries all over the world. <laughs> Which was really nice for Andrew Carnegie, but you know um, we didn't have an income tax back then, so he wasn't funding you know roads, <laughs> so they didn't have roads; <laughs> they had railroads. Um, but uh, that, that we're getting back to that huge separation of uh, between rich and poor. We're not at that stage yet, but usually when the separation gets too great, you have a revolution like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution. That always happens when a, a large number of people have nothing, and a large number of people have everything, and there's no path in between. So, I illustrated that one in the Death of the Damned. You know, when, when a billionaire decides he's going to smuggle terrorists into the United States to suit his own ends. And what's the uh, what's the next one, or or, or, or is that yeah, too the, soon? To, the one you know, I'm starting. Yeah. Uh, no, I always I always know when I'm going to protest. I always <laughs> know when I'm going to protest. <laughs> and so uh, you know, the, this last election cycle, and and now we're starting to hear the term fake news. Yeah. Um, in which people on the left and the right and the middle, everybody makes up their own story and puts it out there. And you know, we had a guy with a with a assault rifle walk into a pizza parlor because he firmly believed that Hillary Clinton had a pedophile ring working out of this pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Um, it was fake news. And he bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And he walked in, and people could have been killed. Uh, this just happened the last couple of days. You know, there, there are plenty of people on the left who are willing to take up arms against the right because of this same stuff, some of it's fake news. You know, there, I saw something going around with the was the recount in Ohio or Pennsylvania or somewhere, uh, you know, this this box had been tampered with, and there's a photograph of the tampered box. And I've been around the technology business long enough to know what a computer seal looks like, and the photograph that I was looking at was not a computer seal. <laughs> was, so I'm not sure who was pushing this out there, you know, or what their agenda was, but it was a broken seal on a metal box, but computers really aren't made out of metal anymore. <laughs> and, you know, they haven't been for many years. Um, so I don't know what the hell this is all about, but it's not what it appears to be. So people are taking up arms, and it's not always because of the truth. You know, we're, we're, so many people are denigrating the, the media, quote-unquote media. Those guys are the ones who are held to a higher standard, and reporters gets, get fired if they make up stuff or if they don't verify uh, sources. So, you know, uh, under Watergate, the two reporters, Berners, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, had to verify everything they got from their inside source. We, we later found he was a... Uh, uh, he was the second in command at the FBI, and he was kind of pissed about what was going on. And so he was feeding them information, but they didn't publish any of it until they had it independently confirmed. Now, today, nobody's doing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the independent confirmation is just not happening. So you can make up anything you want, stick it out there, and people go, oh, wow, look at that. You know? <laughs> yeah, go so, post it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, you know... 
you know, Alan Peterson is a bank robber. I heard it in an interview with Seely James. <laughs> they were plotting to re- steal banks, and, 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 and there's something to that because you and I just talked, or I talked about, you know, how we could rob a bank, um, but it's unverified because we didn't do that. <laughs> we talked about it for the purpose of fiction. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm going to take that to the extreme, and uh, and you couple that with uh, the hacking that's going on today. Uh, I've been giving this a lot of thought lately that hacking is not a good basis for a thriller. I read some really good book. Having been in the technology business um, several years ago, I read a book called um, Broken Window by Jeff Deaver. Excellent book. Really well researched. Never went anywhere. I was thinking, God, everybody's going to wake up and realize how unsecure their laptops really are and their lives in general. And uh, nobody really paid much attention to it. And I realized hacking's not very sexy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to put the hacking in with uh, you know the, this this fake news and. Uh, and that's where I'm looking at my my spreadsheet, and I'm looking at my storyline, and going, okay, I got to find a sexy way to make this look good. And um, I haven't really got there yet, but I got a great opening chapter. Yeah, I got yeah. a opening scene is great. It doesn't have anything to do with the story, so I'm kind of probably going to rewrite three fourths of that opening <laughs> chapter. But last night I just sat down and pecked out 1,500 words. God, this is great. Well, Celia, I want to thank you. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, I know I've taken more more of your time than I said, but it's just fascinating talking to you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we have uh, some of our listeners who are aspiring writers. Uh, so I'm, I'm starting to ask now the guests for you know, your advice to them. If someone's out there wanting to write a book. Yeah, well, the, the advice I would give, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, it's not about the tools, it's not about the marketing, it's not about who you know, it's always about the reader and how to make them go, wow. Keep that in mind and keep writing, forwarding ahead. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. I'd like to ask you to please review and rate this uh, podcast over on iTunes. It really helps me get the word out. If you take a few seconds of your time to uh, do that, it would be much appreciated. You can also visit my website at thrillingreads.com forward slash podcast for show notes on this episode, as well as information about the uh, podcast in general. And you can also sign up for my mailing list there. You'll be getting uh, special offers from our guests, as well as information, uh, behind the scenes information on the podcast. And uh, please do visit my author website at alanpeterson.com. I appreciate your support. And so until next episode, I will talk to you then.